people don't have a choice about whether or not to fight these things. You have to keep learning all you can. You have to keep finding the allies you can. And to despair is to abandon all the people who need us most. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today is a very special episode because I am interviewing one of my very favorite people in the world, my stepmother, Mary Summers. Mary is a senior fellow in the Fox Leadership Program and a lecturer in political science at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also a former physician assistant, political speechwriter, and a lifelong activist. And 52 years ago, she and three other activists made a 28-minute black and white film about what it was like to live in a country where abortions were illegal. That was in 1970. Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion throughout the country, was three years in the future. And of the approximately 800,000 abortions performed in 1970, only 1% were obtained legally. 300,000 resulted in complications, and 8,000 resulted in death. As you all know, we are now living in post-Roe America, and there is much about this fight that has changed in the past 52 years, but also much that stays the same. So I asked Mary to come chat with me about her work on the film, as well as what we can learn from the people who fought for legal abortion before as we begin to do it again. I also want to note that I am very delighted that paid Burnt Toast subscribers enable me to pay a $100 honorarium to podcast guests. And for this episode, Mary was delighted to donate her honorarium to the National Network of Abortion Funds. So here's Mary, but first a quick break. This week, instead of asking you to support the podcast or subscribe to the Burnt Toast newsletter, I'm going to ask you to join the Burnt Toast Giving Circle. Longtime podcast listeners will remember episode 34 when Melissa Walker of the States Project came on to explain why every issue we care about, especially abortion now more than ever, but also trans rights, voting rights, immigration rights, affordable health care, you name it, every issue starts in the states at the state government level. Federal elections get all the money in the headlines, but state legislature elections matter so much more because those lawmakers can get so much more done, and they work for you. So the state's project makes it their mission to elect progressive candidates to as many state governments as possible. They are especially focused on states where Republicans hold the majority by just a few seats, which means we only need to win a few small elections to change the balance of power. The Burnt Toast Giving Circle is raising money for progressive candidates in the Arizona state legislature election. I chose Arizona because it's a state with a newly signed abortion ban and very little in the way of gun safety legislation. Our original goal was to raise $10,000. We have blown past that and are now almost up to our new goal of $20,000. But we need your help to get there. So click the link in your episode description to help us. Hi, Mary. Thanks for being here. I'm so thrilled to do this. (laughs) I am very thrilled as well. So let's start by telling listeners a little bit about you and about your work. So I am a senior fellow with the Robert Fox Leadership Program at the University of Pennsylvania. I've been for the last 20 years a lecturer in political science, teaching service learning courses on the politics of food and agriculture and on schools as sites where inequalities and economic status and health, health especially, can either be addressed or reproduced. My students, as well as being in class with me, are working in schools and after-school programs and 
food stamp and SNAP enrollment campaigns and programs like that so that they're learning about institutions on the ground as well as in the classroom. Yes, excellent. And that is like one of many things you have done in your life. (laughs) Do you want to also just go back a little further and tell us what you did, especially around the time you made the film? I got involved in making the film right as I was graduating from college in 1970. I was at Radcliffe and I had gotten interested in film and interested in the women's movement. That period at Harvard was the height of the anti-war movement. We basically were on strike most spring semesters that I was there. (laughs) And especially the Harvard strike of 1969 was really important to me as seeing the entire university mobilized around stopping ROTC on campus and expansion in the community. People who had been meeting in tiny rooms trying to organize by the end of that strike, meeting in the football stadium, wow. faculty and students together, voting on the demands of the strike and passing them overwhelmingly and the administration basically conceding everything we were fighting for. And that gave me a real sense of, you know, that we could change the world in the years both prior to and after graduation. I was also getting more interested in the women's movement as one more important way of thinking about relationships within the anti-war movement, within the student movement, and in society as a whole, men were clearly very dominant and women were starting to be very interested in talking to each other about everything from clitoral orgasms to shared housekeeping in ways that were exciting and interesting. And then a person I was taking some classes from on, I think it was Italian neorealism movies, told me about a group of women who are making a film about abortion. And I contacted them. They originally started, I think, out of the same group of women who eventually would become the founders of Our Bodies Ourselves. It was a big bread and roses office that was generating all this activity around women's health and consciousness raising groups and just lots of excitement about thinking about the inequalities of gender roles and how could we address that. Jane Pincus made it possible to make a film because her husband was a documentary filmmaker then at MIT and we were able to use the MIT film lab equipment and both cameras and editing and she had been listening to what was then the equivalent of NPR about efforts to get the Massachusetts legislature to legalize abortion and just couldn't believe that the only voices you could hear debating it were men's voices. And so she thought, well, if we could make a film that would raise up women's stories and voices, that would make a big difference in these debates. And that made a lot of sense to me. She had another friend from her women's groups who joined us. And then the other filmmaker, Karen Weinstein, had come to Boston to work with Boston Newsreel, which was a left-wing filmmaking group where they were mainly working on films about the anti-war movement and on race and poverty. And there wasn't much effort to address women's issues. And when she heard there was a film being made on abortion, she decided to join us. Can you talk a little more about why the conversation on abortion in particular was being only had by men. Like what you just said about Jane said, you know, women weren't telling their stories. Why? Literally, the Massachusetts legislature was all men. Well, that would tell them, yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, if there were any women in it, they their voices were not on the radio. They were not talking about that. <laughs> and it really, that was a time when electoral politics was overwhelmingly dominated by white men. And let's also be clear, this was three years before Roe, so abortion was illegal, which was why you were doing the film. How did you think about the potential risks you were facing by doing this work? This was a period in which it looked as if the way we would win abortion rights was state by state, Mm -hmm. legislatures passing. Hawaii had legalized abortion before we started, but so far away. Right, not very (laughs) helpful. People were not going to Hawaii for abortions. And then the big question was that a lot of states were starting to legalize abortion, but you had to get permission from a doctor, Mm -hmm. meet with a psychiatrist, Abortion on demand sounded like a very, very radical idea to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so we were very interested in making a film that would say that should be the norm. I mean, that women should get to decide if they needed an abortion. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you can understand why people who are fighting just within state legislatures were feeling like, We aren't going to be able to get any legalization at all unless we allow for all these permissions and doctor involvement. And it has to be between a woman and her doctor kind of talk. They were taking a kind of incremental approach to it. Right. So it seemed really important to have more pressure and organizing outside the legislatures and the courts that would help push the idea that this should be women's decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the questions of risk, there was certainly a lot of stigma. There was also tremendous pent-up trauma that women did want a chance to talk about. I mean, that Mm -hmm. was what was so exciting about the women's movement of that time was all these women who had experienced a whole range of different types of very real oppression either in their own homes or in I mean I I went to my college infirmary and asked for birth control and they wouldn't give it to me you right. know like the the range of humiliating experiences women had been through much less the women who had been through illegal abortions which for many were so terrifying and so scary there mm-hmm. there was this lovely doctor in the hills of Pennsylvania that apparently gave Many women, very good abortion experiences, but there were a lot of people who did not have that. So for some of them, just being able to tell their stories was huge, even if they didn't want their name associated with it. So we started receiving tapes of women wanting to tell their stories. And several of the filmmakers had stories that they taped. So I think more we were really excited and energized about doing this work than that we felt. I mean, there was a lot of debate about whether we wanted our names on the movie. So in that sense, there was worry about stigma, I would say. It's so moving to think about women sending in those tapes, like pre-internet, you can't just email or, you know, like, like that's a lot of work. Right, right. Get a tape made, put it in the mail. Like, it's, just, it's amazing. It's really amazing. And then for us, I remember, that's one of the things I remember is trying to splice those tapes together. (laughs) And you know my technical skills (laughs) to create the story in the first part of the film. But at the same time, I mean, I do want to emphasize that all around the country, there were women who were becoming amazingly strong and
and militant around the fact that they weren't going to put up with this anymore. I mean, we knew about the Janes in Chicago, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of your mm-hmm. listeners are going to know about now, too, because of the two films, you know, where women had trained themselves to do abortions on kitchen tables. Right. To me, at least, that seemed extraordinary and and really scary. And yeah. I was like, well, thank goodness I'm just making a film. <laughs> because that was also risking very long-term prison sentences. So there was many, both, you know, could you harm somebody right. and right. could you go to prison for this? Both of those things seem much more scary than anything we were doing. Right. Oh, man. Yes. So as you mentioned, the sort of original goal as activists was to work towards passing abortion laws state by state. That's where you were when Roe happened. So when Roe first happened, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how that conversation shifted. I mean, was there a feeling from yourself and other activists that like, we really still need to do the state work? Or did it feel like, okay, now that conversation's over? Well, a couple of things were going on. I think in terms of the bigger political picture, there was this, oh, okay, we've won this in the courts, (laughs) and that's where we're going to be protected. Mm -hmm. And no matter what happens in a state legislature, we can go back to the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court. It's given us this right. It can be fought in the courts. So I think especially for the people who are devoting their lives to winning abortion rights, that just made sense. And I think that's was very understandable. I did think grassroots organizing and changing people's hearts and minds and reaching out to people with women's stories was very, very, very important. I mean, that to me was the way you could make more fundamental and more lasting political change. I mean, it was incredibly important to protect women's individual rights. But to me, we needed these bigger social and political Mm -hmm. changes that weren't going to happen through the courts. Right. So that was the bigger political picture. The personal picture was it took us almost a year longer to finish this film than we thought it would. (laughs) We weren't getting any funding. We had been this kind of very small, intense group of women trying to figure out how to make this film, how to tell these stories, how to guarantee that it would put abortion in a broader context that we all felt proud of. Some of the major forces funding the push to win abortion rights were associated with organizations like Zero Population Growth Mm. that had this big push on, oh, we can solve poverty by making sure (laughs) poor women don't have children. We didn't want our film to be used by people who had a class perspective that we thought was wrong or we wanted to speak to all those issues. But that was really hard to figure out how to do that. So there were a lot of tensions among ourselves as we were figuring all that out. And we had to get out of the MIT film studio. (laughs) (laughs) They were done with you. and, And so we finished it quite abruptly. There was a couple of showings and we each tried to arrange other showings. My parents were in Rochester then, and I went off to show it at the University of Rochester and at RIT, and a former professor had me come show it at Mount Holyoke. But meanwhile, we need to get jobs. We need to move on with our lives. And it was very clear that now that abortion was legal, our film was mainly about how incredibly frightening illegal abortions were. Mm-hmm. 
which was not the main message that young women should be hearing. Right, that what they right. needed was assurance that legal abortions right. are safe. Yes, <laughs> and yes. so like the Guttmacher Institute folks, for example, were kind of horrified by our film. Plus, the abortion pill was not an option back then. No. So the only thing was the DNC. And that does change even what a legal abortion looks like now. Yeah. Right. And, you know, in fact, legal DNCs, it was not the intense, scary, painful experience right. that the film right. portrays. So that was a big change. The broader issues that we wanted to address in the film about you know, in fact, the huge percentage of the people that were actually dying from illegal abortions were Black and third world and poor women. They were also the people with the higher maternal mortality rates. And our eagerness to address issues of inequality with regard to race and class and women's health, clearly all that was still very relevant. And winning abortion rights didn't mean winning abortion access. You see abortion as just one piece of this much larger puzzle. And at times, this has put you at odds with other feminists who've taken a kind of single-issue approach to this topic in a similar way that conservatives have, but, you know, obviously coming at it from the other direction. So let's talk a little bit about why it is so important to connect abortion to other issues, especially poverty, and how that helps work towards building these broader movements. I'm somewhat reluctant to be critical because I'm old enough now and also have studied history enough to be able to see again and again that what happens when you have these big, broad movements trying to fight for social justice, we never win everything we're fighting for. And there's a tendency afterwards to blame the people fighting for not having won it all, as opposed to their opponents. <laughs> One reason I want people to see the film is because I think there is this impression of, oh, those second wave feminists, all they cared about was middle-class white women. And you mm -hmm. can see from the film how concerned we were that people who were dying were Black and, and third world women and right. Um, right. how concerned we were about forced sterilization. And we did not succeed in raising up those issues in ways where we won, but we were raising them up. You know, not everybody, obviously. So I do think the important thing to remember is that Roe v. Wade is one in 73. And throughout the 70s, going into the 80s, we have an increasing reaction against these efforts to fight for greater equality and to use government to protect people's rights. There's a growing reaction against the civil rights movement, against the women's movement, against the environmental movement. I mean, they're achieving their greatest victories, but the reaction against them is growing and mm -hmm. is fully articulated when Ronald Reagan gets elected and is saying the problem is government. And the world in which you grew up is a world in which everybody was being told governments, you know, are bureaucracy, they you know, don't do anybody any good. We need to work with markets to make the world a better place. That became the mantra, which worked very well for people who had enough money. I mean, it didn't work even, it wasn't great for them, but might way better for them than for people who didn't have enough money right, to right, right. participate in markets. But that was the world in which people were still trying to 
fight for women's equality. And so the definition of equality became narrow and narrower. It was like, we mm-hmm. need for women to get to be part of that narrow group of elites right. that are dominating right. this economy. It was just about accessing the white man's power. It wasn't well, and only a very few white men's power. Right. <laughs> Wealthy fair white point. men's fair power. Yes. Very yes. well-educated <laughs> and professional yes. white men's power. So that is happening at the same time that millions and millions and millions of white men and women and people of color who throughout the 60s and 70s had lived in an economy of greater equality, higher wages, jobs with benefits, pensions, funded pensions, are losing all of that. So you can completely understand why if we're going to live in a world dominated by wealthy elites, it should seem right that women and Blacks should be part of those elites. Mm -hmm. You can understand why those struggles became narrowly focused. But it also then lost you the broad base that you need to sustain a greater social movement for a vision of social justice that speaks to more people. I think it's important for folks doing this work now to understand that second wave feminists weren't all the sort of Betty Friedan, you know, that model, that there was the Johnny Tillman model and this focus on what if we were dismantling this whole system of elitism as opposed to just getting a couple people promoted. Which we thought we were doing. We won significant victories. I don't want to lose track of that. It means a tremendous amount that we are not in the same place in this struggle. Yes. That we were when I was young, much less when my mother was young. She couldn't get a diaphragm until Massachusetts (laughs) passed laws saying married couples could get birth control. So the victories we won were really significant, but the Reagan revolution was really significant also. And those Mm -hmm. two clashed in ways, you know, that I see as resulting in the election of Donald Trump, which is why we lost abortion. And obviously right now, as we're all reeling from everything, there's this new sort of divisive conversation emerging. And I think there's value to it, this push on using inclusive language around abortion to acknowledge that people of all genders have abortions. And then we're hearing from folks like Pamela Paul, you and I talked about her op-ed, saying we have to keep this as a women's issue. And You know, I think you are such a great example of someone who has been through all the different iterations of this, who has embraced inclusive language. I'd love you to talk a little bit about how you see that piece of it. What can we learn from that conversation? What do we need to be doing? As I think about how do social movements develop and then what strategies do they need to win, which is so critical. I mean, people's lives are at stake. I think of social and political movements as playing, you know, several different functions, all of which are really important. And I mean, they get their strength from the fact of people recognizing their own experience and their own, you know, oh my gosh, I've been living with this, you've been living with this. We can say out loud how, what was terrible about this. And we can name it, we can say how horrible it was that our husbands thought they don't even have to do the dishes, much less share the cooking. I mean, I'm talking back in the, you know, when my mom's friends were, right, were getting that was the issue. Um, yeah. You know, obviously this is going to make our husbands defensive, but it's still so important 
important for us that we do this. And so I just think that's always true and that we need to recognize the needs of people to speak to their own experience, to name it, and to name it in ways that may make others uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I just so deeply believe that most of us want the same things. We all want clean air. We all want a planet that's not going to burn to a crisp. We want our kids to go to schools. And not get shot at. Where they're not killed and where, you know, where they're nurtured, where they learn stuff. <laughs> Even raise the bar a little higher than not killed. Why don't we? Sure. I like how you dream big, Mary. We want to live in safe neighborhoods. All of these are things that all of us want. And right now, the politics of this country does not reflect that. Issues have been defined in ways where we just need to do a lot, a lot, a lot. Those of us who can stand to, those of us who aren't too hurt by what we've been through. I mean, I don't think any of us should be trying to force anybody who's been through something horrendous that makes them not want to talk to anybody who sounds homophobic or sounds anti-trans. People need to be safe and to be in community. And there's so much work to be done, you know, that no matter what your trauma, you can be doing something really useful to help others mm -hmm, <laughs> who suffered mm -hmm. trauma like yours. Right, Those right. of us who, you know, who've led pretty protected, privileged lives mm -hmm. and many extraordinarily strong and amazing people who haven't, I do think we really need to be doing everything we can to be reaching out and to be listening mm -hmm. and to not limiting our language. You right, know, I mean, right. we need to be able to talk to all kinds of different people right. who use all kinds of different language. And I do think it's important, you know, to be able to say, you know, to our trans brothers and sisters, look, you know, there's times I'm going to talk about women, you know, mm -hmm. because this is so overwhelmingly a women's experience and this is an audience I need to reach. But to me, it's also very liberating to go back to being able to speak very generally about people. The issues that are affecting Black lives are the same issues of healthcare and housing and jobs and global warming, pollution are all have more impact on Black lives than on white lives. But to address those issues, we need movements that speak to white people too. <laughs> For a long time in the women's movement, you know, you sort of weren't speaking to men at all. And that wasn't a way to win. Right. That just made everything very easy to dismiss as a women's issue. I mean, that's why we've made no progress on paid leave, because it's only women who need to take paid leave, because it's only women who have the babies. You know, I mean, we're not going to get anywhere on a lot of this until it matters to men. So that's why I think it's actually quite exciting to have, you know, yes, let's challenge gender roles. Let's yeah. speak to people. Right. Let's talk about how people have abortions. People are impacted by abortion. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, you know, there can be grammatical issues. I'm just, I'm sort of against people getting too self-righteous about the grammar either way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do remember a time when amazing civil rights leaders who didn't want to start saying African-American or Black who were sticking with Negro, you know, who mm. had led extraordinary struggles through the 50s and 60s and 70s, yeah, yeah, yeah. then start to get dissed by, you know, militant young Black leaders. Those stories happen again and again in our movements. Mm -hmm. I do think 
it's very understandable how and why it happens. <laughs> I mean, in other words, mm -hmm. the more we say, the more voices we have speaking in as many languages as possible about how most of us want the same thing and how can we build strategies that'll get us there and unite us around what we agree with, the better. Let's make good faith efforts to get there. Let's not attack each other. <laughs> Let's try to listen. Let's try to understand why the people who are hurt are hurt and acknowledge that. And, and those of us who have the privilege. Yeah. That's getting yeah. us where we want to go. And I think there's also, I mean, as you said, those of us with privileged lives who can do more work, we can do this work of learning new language. This is not the hardest thing anyone's been asked to do. If this makes things safer and more comfortable for more people to participate, then we should be doing it. But yeah, I also hear what you're saying about you know, staying united on common purpose is going to get us further in the long run. I think we can do both. I mean, it is what bothers me about the Pamela Paul is no one is saying to her, don't go out there <laughs> and organize and speak to women. You know, right. she's the one who's choosing <laughs> to feel attacked by other people's choices. Other people's language doesn't actually have to impact her at all. Yeah, absolutely. That is so true. So, you know, here we are post row in this great world that <laughs> this mess we're in. You know, you and I spent the week together after the decision was announced. And I think I cried like every day. And people who know you and know your work, you know, were saying, isn't your stepmom just devastated by what's happening right now? But you were one of the people giving me a lot of hope. And so I would love for you to kind of share some of that. We had a whole thread discussion and I was hearing from lawyers who were feeling like they had to question their career, you know, like, how do I keep doing this work? I was hearing from healthcare providers, from parents, you know, everybody is very scared right now and I think pretty depressed in my generation. I do understand how and why people decided to rely on the courts to protect abortion. And I want us to pass laws that will allow us to do that again. I mean, in other words, I see a right to abortion rights and access mm -hmm. as critical to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think we have to get the majority of Americans to see that that's the case and pass laws that will protect all of us. Now, you understand that when it looked like you could just get those rights protected without getting people to vote for them, why people went in that direction, mm -hmm. even though it meant giving up on building on the hearts and minds. It seemed like a safer way to go. Even though there were big trade-offs to it. But the truth is that 50 years ago, we probably could have won before there was 50 years of anti-abortion organizing. <laughs> We could have won hearts and minds more easily than we're going to do now. F 50 years of anti-abortion organizing, 50 years of people's becoming increasingly embattled and increasingly embittered by losing so much, which has given the people that call themselves right to life their power. They seem to be the ones that are sort of standing for principle and reaching out to others and saying, we have principles, we value life, you know, and we may lose everything else, but we're going to stand up for life. And those of us who want better lives for all people 
can't allow them to be the ones in that position. I do think we need to reach out to all the presumably good-hearted people who are embracing that, mm-hmm. you know, and saying they want to support women and having children. We all, you know, we need to say, okay, let's work with us to support right. healthcare for all, the child yeah. tax allowance. Yes, um, paid leave, daycare. Paid leave. Yeah. So I do think that's one front we need to move on. We need to embrace a broader, truly pro-life agenda. There's so much work to be done to promote access that actually people have had to be working on all these years, ever since right. Medicaid stop paying, you know, and much less people who don't have access to Medicaid. And people have been doing amazing work at that. And now they need even more support, you know, so Mm -hmm. there's all the work to support individual women directly. And then there's the broader, you know, how do we change the politics of this? And then, you know, obviously, we got to continue the court battles. We need people passionately defending freedom of speech in these states where doctors and healthcare providers are being told, you have to tell patients lies. <laughs> Either you're, they're being forbidden from talking to people about abortions at all, or they're being told they have to read scripts where abortions are associated with breast cancer and suicide. None of which is true. None of which is true. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Completely false science where the correlation of the fact that it's the poor people and people of color are, are an overwhelming number of the people who need abortions. And they're also the people who face the worst health consequences on every issue. That correlation is being read as if it's a scientific thing that has to be read to patients. That kind of thing, you know, every law school in the country should be helping people think, how do we challenge this? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. every medical and nursing school should be talking, you know, how do we help? I'm very interested in how this is all going to play out in terms of thinking, how can we support people legally? Because we do need all these organizations that are trying to provide abortion rights and access. We can't have them all go under. <laughs> I think a lot of them do have to follow whatever the law is and provide whatever help they can. I think a whole lot of the rest of us do need to be, you know, like the Janes in the 70s thinking, well, if you have to break the law in order to help women, how are we going to do it? How are we yeah. going to do it in ways that makes the law unenforceable you know, in mm-hmm. the ways that civil rights people did? I mean, I think there's enormous challenges, but we have to meet them. I have to say the one other thing that really keeps me going is thinking about history. And when you think about all that Black people went through after Reconstruction, (laughs) you know, and including allies that just drove people in the wrong direction, people don't have a choice about whether or not to fight these things. You have to keep learning all you can. You have to keep finding the allies you can. And to despair is to abandon all the people who need us most. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to cry again. <laughs> um, yes, you're right. You're right. It's just, whew, it's hard. It's scary. It's hard. We have a lot of lives at stake. And I think just sometimes I have to sit with that for a minute. But I appreciate you sketching out what these different fights are going to look like. I think it helps us all think about how we're going to contribute And the sense of solidarity you can feel once you're working with other people. 
does support you. It's very important not to do this work in ways that make you feel, you know, burned out or Mm -hmm. under attack in ways that you can't handle. You have to find what works for you and the community that can support you and the ways in which you can support yourself. And we should say, too, there is a very robust reproductive justice movement. Like, there are people who have been planning for this, who knew this was coming, and who, you know, like, like our work is to figure out how to support them. There was sort of an initial response on social media of people posting things about, like, you can come stay in my guest room if you need an abortion in my state. And, like, we may come to that, but there are also, like, systems in place that we can be supporting individual acts of heroism going rogue is not going to be how we get this done. And there's organizations organizing the guest rooms. And people have been doing that right along because for all these decades, in fact, many women have been lacking access and have been having to come to other states. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Well, on the note of figuring out how to do this work without burning out, we can turn to our Butter for Burnt Toast segment where we give a recommendation. And yeah, would love to know what you are doing to sort of take care of yourself right now. When I think about what do I do every day or try to do every day, it is to have breakfast on my porch (laughs) where I get to look at my garden and read the paper and talk to my husband to the extent that he's willing to have breakfast on the porch. He's more willing (laughs) on weekends, (laughs) but sometimes weekdays as well. And it just... It's a way of sharing the news, even when it's really bad news, like sharing it is like getting to talk about it together makes you feel more Mm -hmm. in control. And then the way the sunlight hits the trees around my garden that early in the morning is just so beautiful. You know, it reminds you of everything that's beautiful in the world. And then I take the time to make myself a breakfast with yogurt and fruit and granola and, you know, and it's sort of the the food preparation I most enjoy and enjoy eating. People should know that Mary is not someone who enjoys cooking dinner, certainly not on a nightly basis. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All of the other conversations we've had about mental loads of planning meals and all of that come directly from lived experience. Exactly. How overwhelming that work is and infuriating at times. But yes, but breakfast preparation... I also enjoy for myself, not for other people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have the same breakfast ritual, except I do it before anyone else is awake in our house so that I can just sit out on the porch and look at the flowers and the trees and rage about the news and sometimes text dad my spelling bee score, even though he's probably already done it. Uh, And it is really important to have that sort of time, quiet time at the beginning of the day. I I love it. Yeah, it is really lovely. Well, Mary, thank you so much. This was a really helpful conversation. I hope it helps people feel clearer on what we're doing and, you know, what this work needs to look like now. And I want to make sure people watch the film and get involved. So let's wrap up by telling people where to find the film. You can see the film for free at our website, www.abortionandwomensrights1970.com, all one word www.abortionandwomensrights1970.com. We really hope people will find it helpful for thinking, talking, and organizing around abortion rights and access. It's 28 minutes long. It's a good length for either a public screening or inviting some friends over 
to watch it and discuss it over coffee or a glass of wine. And depending on your friend's interest or people there, the website's Get Involved link provides links to organizations that they can work with or donate to that support individuals in need of abortion care, helping people access medication abortions, for example, as well as organizing and lobbying at local, state, national, and international levels. We would really love for the link to that website and the film to be widely shared and posted. Well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I loved it. Thank you so much. And great to be with you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks. You are what enables me to pay honorariums to podcast guests, and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Celltrade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thank you for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.